Hello. Hi, Piers. It's Elle here. How are you doing? Hi, Elle. How are you doing? Really well, thanks. Yeah, good. Great. How's lockdown treating you so far? Um, pretty good. So it's um, actually really busy here today. Today's guest is an award-winning architect and broadcaster who you will recognise if you've ever caught World's Most Extraordinary Homes or The House That 100K Built on TV. Yes, I'm welcoming today Piers Taylor, who I am very lucky to have had a chance encounter with over vintage workwear, a French worker jacket to be precise. Unbeknownst to Piers, the insight that he has shared in World's Most Extraordinary Homes has broadened my capacity to understand and appreciate architecture enormously. Architecture is the path not travelled for me. I'm so hugely interested in it, inspired by it, but still know so little. But enough about me. Here's Piers to introduce himself and share what he's working on at the moment. So I'm an architect and I've been an architect for about 25 years and I studied in Australia originally because my mother was Australian and I loved getting away to get another perspective um, on the world, which meant, I guess, that I had a slightly different training from a lot of my contemporaries here in the UK. And um, I now live and work in a very rural context in a woodland in the southwest of England, but we work all over the world as architects. Thank you. That's, that sounds great. So what was your slightly different route that you've referred to there? Well, the slightly different route in some ways was that I uh, was, I guess, a wayward child. I was thrown out of school. I didn't get on at school. Uh, I didn't really like institutions and I didn't have any formal qualifications. But I, I did go to art school in this country and then I yearned to, I guess, expand my horizons. So I went off to Australia and ended up studying architecture there. But I think that Australians view, um, or Australian architects see the world in a slightly different way than European um, architects. And I guess the grounding that it gave me was one where landscape and the sort of context that you're in, the geographical context that you're in, is super important and there's a huge focus on always understanding that at various scales whereas in this country a lot of people's training was about the formal aspects of buildings i.e um you know um the sort of um, frameworks like modernism and classicism that you use the sort of formal rules that you use to make buildings rather than weather climate geography um those kind of things that's an interesting contrast between the two certainly time i spent in melbourne i absolutely loved seeing contemporary design and i really wanted a slice of that but could not imagine getting anywhere near being able to being allowed to build something like that in in the UK um i guess precedent the precedent of hundreds of years of design in the past is, is what confines us at the moment very much so very much so so here in this country there's a sense that um everything that we build has to relate to a period of history that was actually relatively brief so all of our built environment is was really constructed within a period of a few hundred years you know from the stuff that we see around us that is considered, um, uh, I guess, our important built environment was created between about, you know, 1600 and 1900, say, um, if you, even that is stretched out. But, well, I guess everything that we do has to then fit in with that um, or sit alongside that in some way. 
Whereas in Australia, there are very different concerns. There's much more space. There's a continent that's much more fragile. There's a much more pressing demand to understand weather because it is so extreme. It's so hot, so dry. And um, clearly, there isn't the same cultural preoccupation with fitting in. And there's also, in some ways, still the sense of an architecture of need, an architecture of frugality, an architecture of just making do with what you have in a place, places where resources have been scarce. And consequently, the architects that I studied with were very tuned to building very lightweight, frugal buildings in landscape where they sort of perch delicately above a piece of landscape, you know, that almost not touch landscape had settled down in a piece of landscape and it's almost like if we took that building away nothing would be changed whereas here in this country we have moved we've cut and carved the landscape for thousands and thousands of years so i'm sitting here looking across the salisbury hill which is an old roman fort and the landscape is ancient it's two thousand years of um people moving it around or more you know so every bit of it is farmed managed and it is a constructed thing in australia that really isn't the case at all although it's an ancient landscape and people have been there for thousands and thousands of years they haven't marked it and moved it and changed it in the same way that people have here Oh, that's really interesting. It sounds like perhaps you could have more flexibility as an architect in Australia. Yeah, I think things are changing here now. And I think that people's understanding of contemporary design has changed a lot in the last 20 years or so since I've, I guess, been a practicing architect. But certainly in Australia, when I when I came back uh, to the UK, having trained in Australia, it never occurred to me it would be so hard to make contemporary architecture here then, you know, in the early 90s. And in Australia, that just wasn't a conversation, you know, it never occurred to anyone that you wouldn't just do what you do and it would be, you know, the year 2000 or whatever it was. And, you know, there was not the same, I guess, preoccupation with the past. I mean, we're very hung up on the past still here. Yeah, I hope things continue to shift towards that open-mindedness, less less constraint. For my sake, I, I'm just a, a lover of <laughs> looking at pretty buildings. Um, i really, really the layman here when it comes to architecture. What can architecture enable us? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I think conceptually it can enable so much. So architecture is a vehicle which we use to tell stories, but it's also a vehicle that we use to provide our built environments and to build civilizations. So the things that civilizations leave behind typically are buildings. You know, if we think of um, pyramids or ancient Rome or Venice or whatever it is. And it's immensely potent. I mean, places affect us very, very deeply. And I think they affect us very profoundly and they move us very profoundly but they also affect us in a subconscious way you know i mean there are huge there's a huge amount of research that shows that you know if you're in a learning environment like a school you learn in a particular way if you have a particular type of environment you know you learn better in good environments and equivalently with hospitals you get well quicker in um, better environments, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it affects us on so many levels. I mean, it's immensely potent and it's a very powerful thing, very powerful tool, architecture. 
That's good to know. And albeit in a different capacity, but I can recognise those physiological changes, feeling different, being in different environments. And for me, it's kind of a a cluttered environment or a, a dark space has a certain effect. And I'm drawn more towards then a certain light, a certain room size almost. Again, I'm speaking from just a, a really basic level of, of awareness of space and the effect of space. But I, I can understand that and appreciate that there's a whole body of science as well that supports how we are, how we function. Sure. I mean, if you also just go and think, if you look at, you know, a dog will know how to find the warm spot, how to find the light, how to find the heat. And, you know, cats do, you know, chickens, people, animals do do that all the time, instinctively know how to find a space that suits them. And, you know, we do that as well, whether we recognise it or not. You know, there are certain spaces that really, I mean, certainly speaking for myself, I can't be in others I can be in. And that isn't speaking as an architect, that's speaking just as an instinctive a person that just responds to the same things as everyone else, you know, atmosphere, temperature, heat, light, view, you know, whatever it is that affects us. All of those things we're deeply connected to. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting and a broad, a much broader understanding of, of architecture as a whole, um, rather than what people might perceive as a building on its own without appreciating those other elements to it. Um, you talk and have talked in, I think, World's Most Extraordinary Homes about wanting to be challenged by architecture. Can you elaborate on, on what you mean by this? Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, we take architecture as an art. And if we look at music, look at other creative um, arenas, it's really good to be challenged by those art forms and not just to take what you see at face value and if you unpick something um often you get more from it and you know it's often the same in life that the things that give you the simplest and the most straightforward um experience you know like say white sugar or whatever it is aren't things that you get lasting experiences from so um i like being challenged by things that make me want to persevere with them to begin to understand them i like things that in some ways are slightly more inscrutable than just giving everything away on the face of things so i guess in some ways if you if you look at a very straightforward building sometimes you can see every move that the architect or designer was making what's interesting say about a lot of old buildings that have been changed and adapted over time is that those buildings are often less um uh, less scrutable they're often more inscrutable than contemporary buildings we can't quite see what's happening we have to kind of look and try and understand why things are like they are and if you take that analogy and use it in the design of a new building and don't just design someone something to make something very attractive immediately it can often be much more interesting i think and you know really good food really good art really good music is often something that you need to really persevere with to understand and that's, I think, what architecture can do, you know. Hmm. And similarly, leading on from that, a phrase or a quote that you said, again, in World's Most Extraordinary Homes, really blew my mind because I'm perhaps your your worst client, I'm not sure. But uh, my understanding and my kind of narrow mindedness around design and architecture meant that, yeah, this this phrase I found really mind blowing that you'd said that architecture as an art suffers because it is all expected to be good looking and attractive. So what part are we missing? Well, I guess, again, 
um, there are ways of interpreting that word ugly, but I think um, it links in with this idea of being challenged. I think. So if you take something like punk, you know, it was a movement where everything was challenged, the way things were made, the, how people made them. It was a way of people doing DIY and taking, you know, um, into their own hands the making of various things that was typically bound up in you know, corporate institutions. And what it meant was there was a very different aesthetic that came from punk and punk music sounded very different from anything we'd heard before. And it wasn't at face value sort of pretty music in the same way that, you know, the Beatles had been or up until that point, you know, contemporary popular music had been, you know, but it is an extraordinarily powerful, um, extraordinarily powerful um, force for change and force for expression. And if you again, if you apply that to architecture, I mean, architecture, like all of the arts, is a way of sending out messages, of telling stories about things. And you know, if you design buildings that are speaking of things that have happened that are difficult, you wouldn't necessarily do, say, a pretty building. So I'm thinking of Daniel Liebskin's um, Holocaust Memorial, uh, Holocaust Museum which was, you know, a confronting and challenging building that had to make us um, understand that certain things had happened that were ugly and difficult and awful and evil, you know, and buildings take on those kind of stories. And I think that in our built environment, I think that it's really dangerous to think of things that are just pretty because it's very straightforward and doesn't allow the complexity of lots of things to sit alongside each other. And you know, um, I think that, you know, we take our built environment as a whole, the cities that are very beautiful, that we love very much, weren't necessarily designed to be pretty. They were designed to be quite straightforward and some of them have quite straightforward buildings that have uh, endured over time, that gradually have settled into the landscape and become beautiful over time. And um, so I guess I I want to enjoy the way that buildings look and the way that physical objects and artifacts look, but they don't always need to titillate me as pretty objects. They can be challenging, they can be confronting, they can um, take on um, uh, sort of, um, I guess they can be layered with types of meaning. I mean, I, you know, if I look at my, one of my favorite architecture projects, as a, as a sort of educational project is something called Rural Studio in rural Alabama, where students spend a year constructing buildings for very little money out in the deep south for poor black communities with just found objects. And those found objects are often car windscreens and hay bale, a straw bale, wax, cardboard bales rather, and broken concrete block and all that sort of thing. And those buildings are some of those beautiful buildings I've ever seen. But at the same time, you could say, in a conventional framework, they're quite ugly buildings because they're challenging, they're made out of damaged materials, they're made out of materials that are inelegant, you know, crude concrete blocks, all those kind of things. But they're incredibly beautiful at the same time. And similarly, you know, we did a project in Bristol many years ago called Room 13 in Hartcliffe. It was the most deprived area of the south of the United Kingdom. It had very high levels of adult illiteracy, teenage pregnancy, there was extraordinary high street where everything was boarded up. And, you know, the place was like a bomb site then 20 years ago. And to design a kind of pretty building wouldn't have been appropriate. So we designed a robust, tough building that was in some ways a beautiful building, but it also did use concrete block in its raw form and blue plastic. And I think it looked great, but it wasn't a pretty building, if you see what I mean.
that's a, a good good approach and a good reminder to to think what what don't we like about a building and recognize that as a challenge rather than a judgment that we just perhaps don't like it what can poor design on the flip side and and possibly bad architecture if i can justifiably use that term after the questions you've answered already um what can that cost us i think the problem with architecture is that it's there for so long and typically even the worst design the worst architecture is there for 40 years or more and you know architecture is the process by which we make communities and bad architecture destroys communities in some ways and if we look at our really bad um, uh, new housing and the bad public realm that we make and our bad public buildings and our bad infrastructure it has a corrosive effect on communities, on societies, on how we relate to each other, on how we interact within our communities and how we feel about ourselves and our families. And it's incredibly corrosive when it goes wrong, as we've seen. And in some ways, architects are guilty of that. I mean, some of the best architects have been the most idealistic and have designed some of the worst communities that have been too experimental and haven't worked. I mean, I'm thinking of Runkle Newtown, which was a project by James Sterling that just didn't work and ended up being demolished. And, you know, there are parts of Liverpool, like Cantrell Farm, that was the same. But there are also um, the bad design is done by developers without architects who just use it as a vehicle to try and make money. And they put up buildings as cheaply as possible through a path at planning that is one of least resistance. And what that means is that we end up with awful little um, uh, sort of, uh, I guess I call them noddy estates, where there's an idea of a luxury executive house and is anything but, and it's sold as a little piece of a dream because there's nothing else that people can buy. But actually, these houses are defined by a garage and a piece of tarmac, a driveway, and a tiny slot of separation from its neighbour so it performs thermally very badly and it has small windows and thin walls and low quality materials and poor space standards inside and they're really not very good environment they're not very good buildings they're not very good environments to be they're not very good communities and by and large that's what we have built over the last 40 or 50 years in this country you know so if you look at every town my local town you look at any local town typically there's an old centre and then there's a ring and another ring and another ring of really poor quality housing around it and in a way developers have ruined many small towns and many cities in this country with poor new housing and as a result of that I do think our communities have suffered. Yeah I can certainly as you're talking there about distinct parts of towns I can think think of loads of different examples there has been this sense that those places have grown without any real thought of cohesion. And, you know, if you look at places that are successful bits of um, <clears throat> the built environment, they are generally places that are walkable. They have very good quality public realm. All of the buildings have a responsibility greater than just themselves. They have a responsibility to be good neighbours. They have a responsibility to be the good backdrop to public realm where people come first. And in most new-ish towns or new-ish um, uh, places where towns have expanded, new, new quarters of towns, that isn't the case. You know, they've been designed around cars, they've been designed around 
this idea that we live in one bit and then we drive to work in another bit and towns can't really function like that they're, they're not sustainable places because you need to drive everywhere they're land hungry because they sprawl they don't make good communities they don't have good quality public realm you can't walk on cycle easily you can't escape from them easily up into the uh you know in, into landscape to to walk and everything and so they're really not good examples of the built environment and if you take that in terms of what that means as a model of sustainability i mean if you take two ta- two cities Atlanta and Barcelona, they're both the same size in terms of their urban population. One, Atlanta is 10 times the size of Barcelona, and it has 10 times the carbon emissions per person. I mean, ten t- literally 10 times, and they have a similar-ish climate. I mean, those are the types of places that we make. They just don't work on so many levels. Blimey, that's a shocking statistic. I was going to ask, can you give uh, an example of a town or a city in the UK or abroad that really works design-wise? Yes, I mean, I think there are a lot. Typically, they're places that haven't had huge population explosions. And I think, you know, I mean, having said that, Bath, which is my local town, was planned as a new town. And the reason it works in some ways is that it's a very dense city in some ways it's it's all terrace houses and what's interesting about it is that it isn't about buildings so when we design cities now we think of landmark buildings bath has no landmark building or maybe it has one it has the abbey perhaps but all of the other buildings are basically the backdrop to public realm they're all made out of the same stuff they all look the same you know so every house is like its neighbor and they make streets, it makes squares, and it makes public realm. And that's why Bath is such an interesting city. Not because it's beautiful, it is beautiful, but it's it's an amazing piece of urban infrastructure where you can walk or cycle from one side to the other in, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. You, it has everything you need within 15 or 20 minutes. The buildings, I, I think of them as sort of non-hierarchical in that if you're rich you live in a building that looks like something you live in if you're not rich and it's made out of the same stuff it looks the same it just happens to be a bit bigger its front door is on the street etc 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 and so that is a very good example and typically a lot of bath wasn't designed by architects it was designed it was set out the master plan was set out and that's the most important thing and then it was built by developers who just filled in the master plan so if you look at um almere in holland it's a new suburb of holland of amsterdam which i think is a really good piece of infrastructure and the government master planned it they put in streets put in services they put in the mix of schools houses you know shops offices whatever and then you could buy service plots and you could build anything and you could buy it with money that was made available and there was funding available and the, the land was capped in value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of this infrastructure was put in place to allow then anything to happen. And what it means in a way is that you can build anything. You can build a really bad sort of Barrett-esque house or you can build something that's an exquisite piece of architecture. And actually it can all fit together beautifully because every house meets its neighbour and every house meets the street, et cetera, et cetera. So that you can do it now. And, you know, if you look at, if you go drive through Europe or get the train through Europe and look at all of the hilltop villages that you see around, you know, France and Greece and Italy, they haven't had many, um, there hasn't been much population explosion. And what it means is that there also hasn't be, historically been much architecture. There's just been an incremental growth of buildings. But 
it's built up around one or two streets and it's built up around a sense, again, that every building needs the street. Every building is just made out of, you know, the same material that happened to be to hand. So, you know, every building, every place has its own identity. And there's a very simple set of urban rules that make these places successful. If you look at most new developments that have happened in the last 50 years that are planned, they haven't been planned around those principles. They've been planned around the idea of a landmark building, a building with features, and planners focus on the wrong thing, which is the detail of a building, rather than how all of the buildings come together to make a good place and how you can allow a place to thrive, even if the worst architect comes in and the worst developer comes in, those places should still be able to thrive. But, you know, we focus on the wrong things, and that's a real problem. Is that shifting at all? Have you seen any movement in that? I have. I mean, what thing now is that it's really cool to be a planner again. I mean, I think that planners, so 50% of architects worked in local government up until 1976, and now it's 0.7 of a percent. And um, that number is going up again, which is really exciting. And younger people are realising that to make change, you have to be in planning and are now going back into planning to try and make change. And I think that's really exciting. So I think there is more of an emphasis on, or more of an understanding of what urbanism means. And urbanism doesn't mean megacities. Urbanism just means really good quality public realms where people come together and live in in a relatively dense environment that means that we can share resources and free up land for other things. You know, so my local village where 3,000 people live, is a really good piece of urbanism. There's, you know, effectively a street that's cohesive, that has buildings along it that are kind of higgledy-piggledy, but it works as a piece of urbanism. And you can walk places, the houses meet each other, no land is wasted. You know, it means the countryside around it is then unspoiled and people can use it for recreation. You know, they can walk in it, they can cycle in it, you know, they can look at it, they can breathe the air, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think those principles are poorly understood, but they're beginning to be slightly understood because, you know, I think 30 or 40 years ago, I would have told you that the country would be swamped by suburban developments leading to what people call exurbia, you know, or no-topia, you know, no place there and halfway between sort of rural and suburban, you know, and bits of the country are like that. Now, I think we are protecting our open landscape a lot more. I think we are building in ways that is uh, potentially more sustainable, and we're building in ways that is denser. So I think things are gradually beginning to shift. And I think that there has been more good quality housing in the last 10 years than there has been in the last 40 years. How does that philosophy align with your your personal values and your values in designing? So I'm really choosy about what projects I work on. And generally, every project that I work on has a purpose greater than just making a building. You know, it's, it tries to bring about some kind of change. And architecture can be part of a process of change. And Personally, I work on projects that I think can bring about change for the better in some ways or can embody some kind of principles that can allow other buildings to learn from them or they're a piece of research that sets out to understand something. And for me, that's a really important way to practice. So I have a very small practice and I practice in a way that we can be choosy about the work that we do. 
and I purposely had very low overheads and purposely work with a very flexible team that means that we can work on buildings that we think are worthwhile, I guess. Where do you think within that process is vulnerability and, and boldness and how do you see that that is required or essential to an architect's work? Interesting. I think that the vulnerability thing, I think, is essential in everyone. I mean, it's a process of really, I mean, I in a way, I think if you are, I mean, I suppose that to change that slightly i mean i think the best people in the world that i know are very thin-skinned in some ways that they're able to feel acutely the world and be acutely empathetic and i think if you have any empathy in the world you have to have a thin skin and have to be able to be vulnerable and feel the things around you but at the same time, I think that you have to be quite tenacious if you want to make change. You have to be simultaneously thin-skinned and thick-skinned to be able to shrug off things when you want to um, make uh, change. And I think often the process of making architecture is about, it's often people telling you you can't do things, you know, whether it's people, whether it's not enough money or something won't work technically or something won't work. Um, aesthetically or something doesn't won't get planning or you know can't whatever for whatever reason can't get built and a lot of what you do as an architect is is find and navigate around those kind of issues so there's a kind of boldness that is needed there but at the same time I think empathy is um, uh, vulnerability and I think empathy is everything in, in life in some ways yeah, I agree with that as a as a philosophy, mm. um, not necessarily specific to to a particular area. Mm. Um, I agree with you there. So, can you identify personally any beliefs or fears that that you've had to let go of as you've progressed through your career that has enhanced your ability to feel that both vulnerability and boldness as well, and think freely in your design and your appreciation of design? I, I've let go of a lot. I I um. You know, I've walked away from a practice that I had 10, 12 years ago that I'd set up, you know, 20 years ago because I didn't want to be shackled to it. And, you know, I walked away and left everything. And the reason I hadn't walked away earlier was that I was worried about, I was so bound up in the buildings that I'd done. It was like a loss of identity. I felt that if I walked away from these things, somehow, you know, I wouldn't um, have a past in some ways. And then I realized in a way that I didn't really care. I could just walk away. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have any attachment to the work that I'd done previously. And that was a real sense of relief. And, you know, in a way, I don't have much attachment to any buildings I've done in some ways now at all. And I enjoy looking forward rather than back. And I, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I also would argue that I don't really have a career. I've never planned a career. I, I think that thinking of a career is a really dangerous thing. I mean, I think we ought to think in terms of having a life that is lived rather than a career as such. And I've let go of, I guess, or I guess I prioritised autonomy. You know, I want to be able to be free to work on the projects I want to be able, uh, free to work on the projects I want to work on. I want to be free to go and be where I want to be. So I've structured my practice in a way that prioritises those things are over and above any I guess, commercial success. I've walked away from TV because it isn't right, you know, at the moment. I have stopped making the world's most extraordinary homes because it was a battle. It was combative. It was unpleasant. And I 
was asked to do things that I felt compromised me. And I walked away from that and we're thinking how we can make TV in a very different way that isn't just about going to luxury and expensive houses and how we can actually talk about things that are things that more people can connect with, you know. And I think Le Corbusier, who's an architect that, you know, I admire at times, you know, he, he said that, you know, you have to love what you burn, burn what you love and love what you burn. You know, you have to keep burning what you love and moving on. Nothing is sacred. Keep moving on, keep moving on, keep moving on, you know. And um, I think I, I have let go quite a lot. And I, I that feels great. You know, it feels great to go through the world in quite a kind of light way, not really caring. I have no legacy. I have no, I have no financial legacy. I don't have a practice that I can sell or leave. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want all that infrastructure in life. I want to live in a way that's quite light, I suppose. I love that. I, I really appreciate that. And um, for me, it's the avoidance of attachment. I actively avoid sentimentality mm. in, in various different different ways and forms mm. um so yeah i absolutely appreciate that and do agree i feel like a bit of a fool for saying the word career because career is something that i wanted to retire from the idea of when i was about 17 so. yeah well i think <laughs> we all did. I mean, no, no, right it's word. fine to you we all use it but i think it's it's really dangerous to think of a career because it's somehow how other people see you or the path that you should be leading and there's no should in the world and i think the problem with you know, so much of what happens is that there's only really one path. You know, we go to school, we have to get SATs and then GCSEs and then A-levels, and then we have to go to university, we have to degree. And then we, you know, we we have this sort of path that is so particular. And I think that's really dangerous. It's all about what can I put on my CV so it looks good for other people, but actually you can do whatever you want in the world. You know, life's short. You know, you have to do it, you have to do it your way and you have to do it in a way that is authentic and real. Yeah, absolutely. My most turbulent times were coming to the realization that I was living living my life through that path that you've you've just described um for for somebody else for for perhaps my parents, for society. Yeah, stepping off that conveyor belt as it were has been um a huge part of my journey in the past few years. That's all really really interesting. I'm sorry to hear that perhaps we won't be seeing you on World's Most Extraordinary Homes. I, I really enjoyed this series, but Equally, if it's um, not aligned with your values and the things that you've just described, then absolutely respect to you for making that decision. We are about to make um, our own show, though. We're about to just self-film and self-produce and self-make things that hopefully will be out there and not have to be filtered through conventional production company values, I guess. Oh, great. Well, that's really positive. I particularly found how you talk about architecture accessibly like i said and i think i said to you initially i don't i don't have anything other than a, a layman's understanding of architecture but i i love the idea of it uh, it's certainly kind of the path not taken um so i really appreciate you speaking freely about ideas that's your normal life your your normal way of thinking but some comments and some quotes that that you said have been really mind opening well curiously that was a struggle so part of the reason that i don't really want to make that show is that the premise of the show was that we would go to these buildings and be impressed by them and go wow aren't they amazing and i would go and i would battle because what i would want to do was really two things one i would want to speak about what i saw in front of me as a material object and explain why it was and then talk about these buildings to people to tell them you know how can i describe these things to people 
with language that isn't just me going wow and using adjectives like amazing, but actually, how can I describe them to people? And I have a tiny window of kind of 10 minutes a house. And what is it that I need to do to put this into language that allows people to get this stuff? So that was really interesting. And I really enjoyed doing that. And I would do that again if I was allowed to do it. But you know, unfortunately, the production company wanted me to go wow and jump on the bed and get excited rather than just saying why a building is like it was, you know. And so I just said, I'm not going to do it just like that. And so did Caroline. You know? And um, that's how we've moved on, in fact. Well, then I really look forward to what's coming next, because Great. that that was the whole highlight. Great. Understanding it. Good. Um, so fantastic. Good. Um. We first uh, came into contact um, through a little side venture that I launched in February, which is a, a terrible time to have launched a venture, but hey-ho, on uh, French workwear, French right. worker I'm jacket. I'm by Bleu Travail. So I only wear Bleu Travail. It's like a uniform. And <laughs> um, and I, I wear one all the time and I have loads. And so when I saw you on Instagram, I was like, wow, you know, and um, I'm always looking for new Bleu Travail as well. And um, so when I saw your site, I was like, wow, you know, I've got to follow this and then bought one. Yeah. And so it's that actually, amazing. that's what I wear in my studio. So it sits in my studio in the back of a chair because everything is by Zoom now. Every meeting that I have, whatever I'm wearing, I just bung it on and I have all my meetings in that blush of eye. Nice. That's good to know. I'll get, I'll get you a badge or a sticker or something. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Post, yeah. Poster for the background. <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks for that. I'd seen you on TV on the Sunday night and then at something like eight the next morning, I got this order. So bleary eyed. I was like, oh my God. Beers. Uh, so fantastic. Um, what's your, just briefly, what's, uh, what's your philosophy? What's your love of uh, Bleu de Travail? I think I love it because it's so democratic. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously French workwear and you wear it in a shop, you wear it with your farmer and it's so non-hierarchical and it's so, I guess, functional, you know, it's so beautiful, so purposeful and you can wear it anywhere to anything. And it's also affordable. It's not a luxury item, you know, and it's accessible to everyone. So I think that's why I love them so much. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I like the idea of uh, the, the functionality, certainly. The quality, mm, exactly. um, the, the almost minimalism for yeah. me is uh, just, you know, owning a couple. And even a couple seems excessive, knowing how long they'll last. But I do get my head turned when new stock comes in. Well, yeah, Loads thank now. you for... <laughs> yeah. I have about five, I have to say, um, because I see one and then it, then it fits. I'm like, oh, my God, it, I'm, I'm going to have to get another one like this in case this one wears out. So um, I have built up a few and I have one I, I've worn every day for ages and that's slightly worn out. So I got another one to replace that. And I have another one that I wear if I have to go somewhere that is kind of best. That's a slightly brighter blue. And then I have your, you know, so I, I don't have that many, but, you know, um, there are worse. There are worse indulgences, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, keep at it. Keep growing your collection. Yeah. And, um, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I've blown away and I'm, I'm furiously trying to remember everything that's been said. So thank Great. you for, uh, well, thanks for asking thank God me, we're yeah. recording. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, well, we'll look forward to seeing you in, in some capacity right. soon. And post lockdown, and, uh, come up or, you know, and um, come see the woods and yeah, we'll talk more. Oh, I'd love that. Really love that. Great. Okay. Cool. Well, nice to speak take to care. You. Take care. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Wow. 
What an insightful conversation with Piers Taylor there. There's food for thought in terms of how we approach art as a whole, understanding that art and design portrays a story as well often as a function. Piers reiterated the importance of values and pursuing what feels right. I can talk the hind legs off a donkey about simplifying our lives and the concept of minimalism as a lifestyle. And maybe in another episode where it would take me 10, maybe I will. But Piers refined really what, in my opinion, is at the crux of living with awareness and intentionality. Is that a word? Intentionality. Live in accordance to your values. If you've enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share with any friends that you think would really derive value from this episode. Good Stuff Radio is on Instagram at Good Stuff Radio and on Facebook forward slash Hello Good Stuff Radio. There you'll be able to find more about me, your host Elle, and how you can support and contribute to the show. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.